All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS. You're not quite Jesuits in Lovecraftian space, speculative fiction, book club podcast. So, surprise, uh, extra episode this month that you did not know was coming. And we're going to be talking about a novel by Richard Paul Russo that is either called Ship of Fools or Unto Leviathan, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're living on. This book was published in 2001. It uh, won the Philip K. Dick Award for that year as well. And this episode is going to be a bit different than our previous shows because I am joined today by Brandon Buddha, who is my co-host on Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and also the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. So uh, welcome to ATOS, Brandon. Oh, thanks, Glenn. I'm glad to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun to talk about uh, this novel. It's right in the middle of the Gene Wolfe stories that we cover and the Elder Sign stories that we cover. I mean, this story has a lot in common with the Gene Wolfe novella Silhouette. So I'm really excited to talk about this book with you. I'm also here because this is an episode that one of our generous patrons commissioned us to do. And we are always glad to have somebody commission us to do an episode, to share a story they love with us, or to want to get our take on something they love or used to love or whatever. Uh, it's a lot of fun for us to do that. And and these are extra episodes we get to do that people pay us to do. And it's a great benefit uh, for Glenn and I hosting the podcasts that we host. So I just want to say thank you to our patron for commissioning this episode and commissioning uh, both of us really to do Unto Leviathan by Richard Paul Russo. Yeah, huge thanks. Selling these episode commissions is a big part of how we're able to keep the keep the network going. And uh, this patron actually commissioned four episodes all at once. This is the last of them that we're recording. Uh, what else we've done are three novellas by Roger Zelazny. We did uh, one of them, uh, The Keys to December, on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. And then we've got uh, two of them going on for, for Elder Sign, uh, The Graveyard Heart and For a Breath I Terry. The Graveyard Heart's already up on Elder Sign and uh, For a Breath I Terry will be out Oh, next month, I think, is when that will uh, will be released on Elder Sign. But this here, doing this book, Ship of Fools or Unto Leviathan, this is the very first ATAS commission. And that's uh, that's awesome. I was uh, really hoping that we would start getting some commissions for this show because, well, I love reading whole novels and doing uh, talking about whole novels in single episodes. I will say that we've, we've got two more uh, commission episodes for ATAS in the works, which is uh, super exciting. And also, because this is the first time having a co-host on ATAS, we're trying out a uh, a slightly new format here. And we're actually going to make a Patreon goal for this to, to actually throw more episodes like this in the mix uh, to join our monthly episodes where it's just me talking into the mic for 20 to 30 minutes about a book that I read uh, to bring on uh, co-hosts, mostly from the network, but also maybe just some random people from my life to, uh, to join me in talking about extra books each month. And since this is going to be a new format, let's just talk about what the, the plan for the episode is going to be. I'm not going to do a big recap segment like I normally do, though we will talk about the premise and the structure. There'll be a bit of a synopsis as well. Uh, we're going to talk about the characters. We'll have a whole segment for that. Uh, then we're going to talk about some themes and motifs. Uh, we've each picked one. We're going to kind of present a theme or motif to the other for discussion. And uh, we'll talk about the craft as well. Uh, I think most of you know that uh, I do some writing and Brandon does some writing as well. I think we wish we were doing more writing than we than we actually are. Uh, but uh, we'll try to dissect some 
some of the we'll have some questions about craft here that we'll want to talk about as well. And then we've got some some questions that we'll pose to each other, some puzzles and mysteries that we're into. And then finally, at the end, we will do a sort of strengths and weaknesses segment like we normally do here on ATOS and uh, uh, talk about how we felt the book succeeded or, or didn't succeed or where it succeeded and where it didn't succeed. And uh, but, but before we get into all of that, Brandon, I just want to know about your experience with Russo. Have you read any Russo books before? I have not. Uh, this was a lot of fun for me to read. I was hooked into it o- almost straight away. And I think that's because of the similarity that this story shares early on, at least, with uh, Silhouette. So I was kind of really comparing those two books in my head as I was reading it. Um, and there was a lot I enjoyed about this novel, a lot enjoyed about Richard Paul Russo as a writer. It certainly is a quick read, which I was really glad for, uh, kind of reading 50 or 60 pages before falling asleep at night. Huge pleasure. It's it's better than a lot of my nighttime reading where I get through about 10 long, difficult pages and then fall asleep <laughs> and, and uh, have nightmares about what I've read. This was really just a lot of fun. So, well, let's let's uh, let's dive right into Ship of Fools then. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about the premise, the structure. We'll give a little bit of a synopsis. But I thought we might start, Brandon, by having you read the uh, the back of the book uh, to the audience. Although one thing I want to say before we do that, actually, is just to um, talk about which edition of the book that we have. We both have physical copies of the book that we purchased used. Uh, but it turned out that the used book market for this, mostly even in the United States where we live, uh, are copies of the British version of this, the UK version of this, which calls it Unto Leviathan. So uh, if you dear listener, uh, have the American version of this, what Brandon is about to read may differ from what you have. But uh, uh, Brandon, go for it. Give us the uh, the uh, teaser on the back of your book. For hundreds of years, the Argonos, home to generations of humans, has trawled the galaxy searching for other signs of life. Now, a steady, unidentified transmission has lured the ship to a remote planet. On the surface, the crew find evidence of a colony, but no inhabitants, until they discover a trail deep into the planet's steamy jungles, and their terrifying fate is revealed to them. But this is only the first message. Unto Leviathan is a chillingly suspenseful, far-future epic, a masterpiece of widescreen SF. I uh, I quibble with some of that maybe there at the end. I'm not sure that I would describe this as a far future epic or widescreen SF, whatever whatever that means. But otherwise, <laughs> I think this is actually quite a brilliant teaser on the back, right? Uh, you know, we were commissioned to do this episode, so this was a book we were going to read no matter what. We weren't browsing around the bookshop or the library. But if I had been browsing around the bookshop and and read the back of this, I would have said, oh yeah, that is that is my jam, and I would have I would have picked this up in a heartbeat. And I am glad that we're getting to read it uh, because this type of story is definitely my jam. So uh, let's uh, let's go through what some of the premises are here, uh, not just uh, in the teaser here, but for the book as a whole. Uh, we are dealing with a generation ship. Uh, it's a generation ship that has been out in space for a really long time. The current inhabitants of the, the ship, the Argonos, don't even remember what their mission is. They don't even know their point of origin. They don't remember where they came from. Earth is a planet that exists. They know it exists. They know humans come from Earth, but they've been to Earth, and Earth is a wasteland, and they are not actually sure that they 
were ever even launched from Earth. They may have been launched from some other planet that humans settled after Earth became a wasteland. They don't know. There are no records on the ship that can tell them that. They also aren't sure where any other humans are, if there even are any other humans. As far as they know, the thousand or so people living on this ship are what is left of humanity, though they are looking for a planet to to live on. And some of the people on the ship anyway are hopeful of finding a planet that other humans have actually already settled. And that is why getting this signal is uh, such a big deal, this signal that's going to kick off the uh, the events of the story. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the, the world of the ship as well before we do the plot synopsis here. There are two centers of authority on the ship. There's a, a military command, as you would expect, right? There's a, a captain of the ship. Uh, but there is also then the Christian church, or a Christian church, maybe we'll say, but it is the church here on the ship. The church has a bishop. Priests are called Father. Uh, Much of the imagery seems like it's supposed to be a future development of the Catholic variety of Christianity, though that may not be the case. That's never spelled out quite as explicitly uh, as I would want to to feel comfortable saying that for sure, but it feels that way. That's the feel that it all has. And of course, when you've got two different centers of authority, there's going to be tension between them, and political intrigue is uh, the big thing that is going on here, the sort of power dynamics. And the intrigue really center, centers around the fact that the the bishop wants to be in charge, and the events of the book are going to bring this to a head. Okay, well, as usual, talking about what the book is before we get into uh, actually dissecting what's going on in the book is, of course, taking longer than I expect, which always happens on every ATOS episode ever. Uh, but let me quickly do a synopsis here as well. So the the crew pick up a signal that's coming from a habitable planet. They don't get a response to any of their hails, and so they go investigate. And the signal is clearly coming from humans, but when they get there, the the colony is abandoned, uh, at least seemingly anyway. Uh, And then they find a lot of people dead, uh, dead in some pretty gruesome, pretty horrific ways. Uh, There is then here a whole subplot about a mutiny that the the narrator gets involved in. I should say, by the way, this is a first-person story. Brandon's going to talk about the narrator as a character in a a moment. Uh, But ultimately, they don't stay on the planet. Uh, Instead, they go investigate the destination of a signal that is being broadcast from the planet out into space. Uh, It turns out that where this signal is being sent is an alien spaceship that uh, also seems to be uninhabited, seems to be abandoned and just adrift in space. They investigate this too, naturally, and uh, this turns out to be a real house of horrors. I mean, and and really, the exploring, the the ship part of the book, which is mostly Act 2, this to me, Brandon, felt like the best part of of House of Leaves, and I really loved it. But uh, it turns out that the, the ship is not actually abandoned. It was all an alien trap the whole time, and the narrator and his comrades have to take heroic action in order to save the inhabitants of the ship. And uh, the book ends then with the inhabitants on lifeboats. They're heading back toward the habitable planet while the captain and a skeleton crew use some trickery to destroy themselves and also the aliens at the same time. I mean, that might not be quite right. Destroy is probably not the right way to say that, but uh, no one is coming back from what they do is maybe the way that I'll put that. Yeah, that's right. And I and I wonder, too, if I can quibble with your synopsis here a little bit, if it's right to even characterize the alien spaceship as a trap i mean it certainly is presented to us that way this is maybe one of the issues i had with the with the story uh is that we're really trapped in these subjective experiences of the characters of this story particularly the narrator 
uh, and, re and really locked into the conflict of beliefs that color what people think is going on. But we see very little actually demonstrated in the alien ship that is, uh, you know, full of intent to harm humans. I suppose there is, you know, this graveyard. I'm going to read uh, in in my section of my favorite passage, the first encounter with finding all of these dead bodies on the planet. Um, but I, to me, that just didn't quite connect whether this is an intent, what the alien motivations are, what's going on. It'll actually be the, the question I ask you at the when we near the end of this episode and, and ask each other, you know, questions about the story, what we had hanging out. Uh, mine is going to be about what are the aliens? <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I'm not certain uh, still after reading this, that this was an intentional trap uh, set for humans. The Bishop seems to be able to take a piece of technology off the ship and, 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 and turn it to his advantage. And uh, that use of technology colors his own interpretation of the ship as evil. So there's just a lot going on here that uh, could have used maybe a little tightening of the screws in order to really give us a clear picture of exactly what is happening and what is the objective reality that we're engaging with uh, beyond the pure narrative. No, you're absolutely right. Because this is a first-person narrative, a totally subjective account, uh, even though a lot of it actually is third-person dialogue, uh, we don't know anything about the aliens, really. But all of the characters feel like this whole thing has been a trap and so that's that's what motivates their their action there but let's uh let's talk about the narrator let's let's do our little segment here on the the characters brandon you're going to tell us about the, the the narrator yeah the narrator of this story's name is bartolomeo aguilera uh, no relation to christina <laughs> uh he he's the ship's captain He's the ship captain's official advisor, but he's outside of the chain of command. He was born with a deformity uh, where his hands were really attached to his shoulders, though there were small vestigial arms, uh, only a couple centimeters long on each. But he was born basically without arms, so he has bionic arms and hands. Also, several of his vertebrae were missing, uh, but his spinal cord is intact, and he has a club foot, so he gets in and out of this sort of exoskeleton that helps him walk around and amble around the ship and around the planets. So he's, though he's deformed, he kind of has a little superhuman abilities uh, because his deformities, his uh, loss of arms have led to him being amended with tools, basically with technology. Aguilera is also an orphan. And he doesn't know, nor does he want to know who his parents are. And even though he's the captain's trusted advisor, he is deeply aware of his position as an outsider. And the other downcast or oppressed, or oppressed members on the ship maybe see him as someone in an enviable position. But he's also an outsider of that contingent, that ship contingent as well. So it's really this sense of being outcast that leads him to side with who he sides with in the story, to make the decisions he makes, to be viewed as valuable by different parties at different times. So, for instance, Bartolomeo sides with the uh, mutineers early in the story because he doesn't really see them as mutineers. He sees them as oppressed people, as outcasts, trying to make a better life for themselves apart from the ship, away from the ship. Uh, his 
getting caught up in that, his being imprisoned for his role in that leads him to have a fresh perspective on exploring the alien spaceship. He wasn't caught up in all of the drama and finding it and all of the uh, death that surrounds the first exploration of it. So he's brought on as an outsider, almost as an expendable outsider to explore the spaceship again. And I think that's the most important character trait of Bar Talameo, at least as I understand it. He has real empathy for others and their beliefs. He's always willing to listen to what others positions are but it's his status as an outsider that makes him compassionate uh, he's also in love with a character named father veronica who we'll be introduced to in a little bit uh and and that's basically bartolomeo he explores the alien spaceship he carries the full weight of his decisions but his basic character arc is uh he starts as an outsider gets ostracized for his role in the mutiny becomes an insider for a brief spell, maybe even uh, kind of a captain adjacent type of role officially while he's exploring the alien spaceship. Things go wrong. He gets blamed for that and how things have turned out. He gets ostracized again. And then he's an out- he ends the book as an outsider, though he has a few more companions by his side. One of the things that really jumped out to me about Bartolomeo is that he is basically Tyrion Lannister as Hand of the King, right? He's got the physical deformities, but he's extremely clever. He's highly intelligent. He's he's witty. He kind of runs things in some sense. He is the captain's uh, not just advisor, but I guess also is actually being kind of the Varys character as well, though we don't get a whole lot of that uh, after about the first three or four chapters. But he is the one who's in tune with what is going on in the ship. He's able to navigate both worlds, the the underclass of the the, the workers on the ship and the descendants, I guess, of the original uh, enlisted folks on the, the ship, but then also this kind of elite bit of the ship that is at the top. Uh, there's, a, I don't know, there's also some, some Babylon 5 type imagery going on here with the sort of down below or, or lower decks maybe is how we should uh, how we should put it there and he's able to to navigate both of those but he also comes to to be a little bit disgusted by the whole system and uh, wants to do something about it and uh, gets caught in a in a trap not the alien trap but a political maneuvering trap as well and is maybe is, is imprisoned something that maybe we feel is being done unjustly uh and uh so there's a lot of Tyrion lannister here not necessarily in you know the plot beats uh but in the way that the character is conceived and uh, i really enjoyed that aspect of him yeah i did as well i i like the use of I like the use of the trope of the outsider, and I like the way it's handled in this story uh, quite a bit. And I think this superpower of being an outsider, of uh, being a great observer, of having useful alliances instead of deep friendships, but then developing those deep friendships and kind of slowly working your way inside, but still keeping the power of the observer, appeals to a lot of uh, appeals to a lot of people, especially in high school, who are going through that kind of <laughs> angst, or maybe in their twenties, that a lot of these science fiction novels are aimed at, and I and I think that it's handled really well in this story. Well, we've got four more characters that we want to talk about. Let's uh, let's get to the the next one, which is Pear, uh, which is spelled P A R. The the A has an umlaut on it, so it's a it's a long A in English. It is not Pear like the fruit, uh, but Pear. Pear, uh, much like the narrator, much like Batalarmeo, has some physical abnormalities. He has the condition dwarfism. 
He's an outsider in the same way that Bartolomeo is in that his physical abnormalities make him, in some sense anyway, feel like he's on the outsides of other human communities, uh, but also from being, but also by being a, a member of the the down below, the underclass, the lower decks here. I mean, he is a real lower decks character. Uh, he, in fact, turns out to be the leader of the mutiny. Uh, and so, in fact, has this community around him. And uh, also, at the end of the book, he helps to save the day and the end by uh, helping to come up with the plan that our heroes use to defeat the aliens. He is a chaotic good character, right? I think that's pretty clear by leading this mutiny. And the, the mutiny is all about getting people, especially these lower decks people, down to this planet that they've discovered. Uh, you know, even though people clearly have been murdered, they've suffered this some sort of mysterious and horrible fate, it's got a breathable atmosphere. You can grow food there. It is not a spaceship, right? It is a planet they can live on. And many of the people in the lower decks want to go live on the planet. It is the command crew who do not want to do that, uh, generally for selfish reasons of their own, right? The the captain, uh, Brandon's going to talk about him in just a moment, but the captain in particular doesn't want to settle on this planet because he knows that he'll lose his position of power as soon as there is no ship to be a captain of. And so Pear is really this good uh, lower class character here in this book and does not think that uh, rules are meant to be followed just because they are rules. So he's a, it reads to me anyway as chaotic good if we're thinking in terms of D&D alignments. Probably though, the most important important thing about Pear is that he makes some really, really excellent coffee and has a great stash of whiskey <laughs> as as well. Yeah, I was going to say that if you didn't. He makes a great cup of coffee. and That's why everybody likes Pear. He, he's a great character. I think with the combination of the uh, abnormalities, the deformities or disabilities of Pear and Bartolomeo, and given that this book is called Chip of Fools, that's the American publishing title, uh, we're, we're kind of in a Bashian territory here. And that that's what I got by the introduction of the character Pear, was that we're dealing a little bit with some of Bash's imagery of the strange, of, of taking these strange characters, these physically maybe abnormal or odd-looking people and putting them into the spotlight, which is something Bosch does in his painting. Bosch has a painting called Chip of Fools, uh, and we're going to talk more about titles a little bit later on, but I wanted to point that out and kind of what this character of Pear made me think of. He, he's a great character, uh, initially somebody who's wary of all the ship's command and machinations, and he's not interested in acquiring power. He's interested in liberating people, and I think that that puts him in contrast with a lot of the other major players of this novel. Absolutely. Pear and Bartolomeo both are are fools, kind of in the, the, the jester, the medieval jester sense of, of the, the word fool. But the next three characters, well, maybe not the next three, but the next two characters we're going to talk about are fools in a, a different capacity. They have uh, something rotten with them, something rotten on the inside. Uh, let, let's talk about the captain first. Yeah, Captain Nikos Costa is at the apex of the ship's hierarchy as it stands right now, though we've seen all these power, though we are witnessing all these power structures decay and deteriorate and him being captain certainly provides him with some privileges, uh, but it also makes him the target of other people's power plays, particularly those of the Bishop. And, and you pointed out in the synopsis of the story that we have two centers of power, which are the church and then the political order that the captain is the head of the captain though was tired of being captain that's that kind of moral decay that rot that we see in his character it's a position he inherited 
not necessarily one he had to work for. And we're seeing in kind of classic tales of kingship or leadership or captaincy that the moral condition of the captain certainly impacts the moral condition of the ship. And most of the people want to shake up this order of business and maybe install the bishop as they see him at least superficially as a more morally upright character to restore order to the ship, to liberate people who are oppressed, or at least give them a sense of hope that the secular order of the ship does not offer. Even the captain kind of wants to shake up on some level, or at least he does by the by the last third of the novel. We see that the captain occasionally descends into bouts of alcoholism. His only friend is Bartolomeo, but he's willing to sacrifice him uh, to maintain the status quo. It's not a great kind of level of relationships to have with people. And the real problem with being the captain on the Argonos is that no one knows what the original ship's mission is. No one knows what it should be if or what should be done if the ship finds a habitable planet. Everyone on the live Everyone alive on the ship now, when the story takes place, are generations removed from the time of the ship's launch. They're so far removed that even the that the bishop is willing to put forth this myth that there was only ever the ship. And it's plausible to some of the people on the ship. So even if a planet is found... Does that mean everybody should say goodbye to their home on the ship? What's going to happen to them? How is that going to shake up the class structure that Nikos finds comfort in? But anyway, we see in the character arc of Nikos that once he really learns to delegate power and let go of control, he becomes more relaxed in his position of command, and he makes a heroic decision to go down with the ship if necessary, by the end of the novel in order to save his crew members. So he does have a kind of heroic arc, uh, but he is uh, mostly throughout the story uh, a character who is troubled by the position of command and doesn't really want the responsibility, though he relishes the power of it. And, and maybe even more than relishing the power of it, just seems afraid of change, I think. He he doesn't know who he is if he's not the captain, right? And so any kind of change would just take that identity from him. And he's comfortable and complacent and afraid of the situation changing, uh, afraid of having to think about who he actually is if he's not just this job, right? What is he going to go? What is he going to do? Go down to this planet and you know be a farmer, right? Like that's, that's just not something that he can, he can deal with. And he does get this heroic send off at the end that I thought was quite excellent. But there is also some, some sense of personal tragedy there as well, because it's clear that he wants his wife to stay with him, to, to go down with the ship with him. And uh, she chooses not to. And in their, their last conversation together, uh, the, the captain tells Bartolomeo that uh, if their roles had been reversed, of course, he would have stayed with his wife. He would have died with his wife. And it clearly wounds him that she's choosing not to do that, though that feels like kind of a selfish stance to, to take. I think I would want my wife to go live. But, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. But th- he's also has an open relationship with her at least his relationship with his wife is open as he's got a a mistress and and a child with his mistress so again this speaks to the kind of moral corruption of the character and the captain's real 
motivation in thwarting the mutiny is that he doesn't want to have to tell people who aren't used to doing work that they're going to have to do work to maintain the ship to keep it running in the way that they're accustomed to so that is a really that is a really poor attitude of leadership that you're benefiting from the labor of unseen people and if they go away you're going to have to get these aristocrats basically to have to go down and get their hands dirty in order to maintain the ship he he doesn't want to change anything he wants to maintain the status quo and in the end, when they do go down to the, the planet, though we, we don't actually see them make it to the planet, the, the, the book ends with them on these lifeboats. In fact, that's where the account is being written. That's where Bartolomeo is writing down the account of, of how this has happened. But the power structures that were don't really exist anymore. There is a, a captain of the lifeboats uh, just to get them to the planet, but it is going to be a, a, a new start for everybody there. And the class structures uh, at least are going to be different, if not totally destroyed when they get to the planet. And, and that's an interesting subtext. That's an interesting theme, I think, to the, the whole story. Well, let's, let's talk about the bishop. Let's talk about Bishop Soldano, who is definitely a part of the power structure of the ship and wants to be the captain. He wants to be the only person of the power structure of the ship. He wants to be solely in charge here. He is arrogant. He is power hungry. I mean, he craves power. He has no interest in helping people, which of course is, uh, if you know, if not the number one, the, the number two thing that a bishop is supposed to be doing is uh, helping people. It's uh, what the church is for. It's a big part of what the church is for anyway. But it turns out the bishop is actually an atheist. He doesn't even believe in God. He believes in the church and he believes in himself and he believes in power. And you alluded to this earlier, Brandon. He has he has a number of secret agendas and secret missions going on. The story really kind of gets going with Bartolomeo finding him up to something. It's never really clear what that is, but we know it's going to be some kind of insurrection. Uh, that never quite comes to fruition that way because of the events that, that play out with the planet and the alien ship. But he does send his own people secretly over to the alien ship and has them remove some technology from the ship that he then uses to try to murder Bartolomeo. This is uh, some kind of gravity controlling device that he uses to try to murder Bartolomeo later. Uh, the bishop is very clearly the villain of the story, uh, at least the, the villain of the story who isn't the aliens that we, we never really see all that much of. And uh, he's a pretty classic mustache twirling villain, I will say. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly the antagonist and none of his plans come to fruition. He's thwarted by... Bartolomeo very frequently and the captain who is a shrewd political leader as well but the bishop really believes that he knows what's best for everybody and it's kind of a, a benevolent tyrant that he wants to become the way he attempts to murder Bartolomeo is a very tragic scene in the book but this opening scene where we see the bishop kind of introduced to us as the, the villain of the story, or at least the antagonist or somebody who has more of their own agendas than are interested in, in benefiting everybody or making the ship a better place is, is a little bit of a plot thread issue that I have with this novel as well. It does introduce the bishop's interest in machines and controlling machines as a means to consolidate his power and when we learn about the bishop's private trips over to this alien spaceship the bishop explicitly saying that he believes in evil but not god though that 
may not make him evil, but I think it sort of does. And and his use of alien technology, though he believes that it's evil to kill Bartolomeo, which is unsuccessful, though it does lead to the death of Father Veronica. All of this do consp- all of these facts do conspire to make the bishop uh, the villain. But really, I think the bishop is a pretty good antagonist in the story. He's acting. He's really acting against the motivations and desires of Bartolomeo, though it's not clear that if the bishop succeeded in power, things would be any better or worse for anybody on the ship. But we get the sense that it would be bad for the bishop because he's already power hungry and him getting into that full position of power would lead to a tyranny on the ship, maybe more than the structure that's already in place. Well, we should talk about Father Veronica. Yeah, well, she is the real heart of the story. Her character represents true belief and true faith in Christianity and in the Christian God. Uh, she's kind and gentle and very empathetic, very empathetic to others. Uh, she's kind of the beatific character of the story, at least as Bartolomeo confronts her. But Father Veronica is also given to fits of despair where she, in no symbolic way at all, <laughs> spends time in the <laughs> ship's desert room called the Wasteland. Uh, and she knows that. And she is no fool. She explicitly says this. So in the ship of fools, we have one character who says, I'm no fool. And she says this in regard to her understanding that Bartolomeo has feelings for her that she feels she can really do nothing about, though I think one episode of Despair is kind of about her working through ways to express love that aren't carnal. That's my sense of what's going on. And I I suppose then that the clergy on this ship that I feel also are modeled on Catholicism are celibate. So she can't marry, she can't have sex, she can't express love or affection for Bartolomeo, maybe in the way that she feels tempted to. She really represents compassion and goodness. She has integrity and does the right thing, uh, though these notions she carries around like a burden. They're a weight on her. And and this is evident in her decision to reveal to the ship's uh, political party, the ship's political structure, the executive committee and the planning uh, committee that the church has a massive archival history of the ship from its beginning. And I really hoped that this bit would turn out to be a great plot thread that this, there's this, all this new wealth of knowledge, but the real reason this plot thread was introduced uh, was to show her decision to betray the bishop in order to serve the ship and the ship's needs uh, as a true believer. And that was really the point of introducing that arc, as I said. But I really hope that the ship historian investigating the archives would have gone somewhere. Uh, Father Veronica is inadvertently murdered by the bishop's uh, machinations and plans through sending secret missives to Bartolomeo to meet in the cathedral where the bishop sets off a kind of gravity device that changes the gravity of the room. Father Veronica was sleeping on the pews. Bartolomeo shows up in this room in the cathedral and he, through the strength of his bionic arms, is able to stay alive. But Father Veronica is 
really she falls to her death uh, multiple times and it's a it's a harrowing scene uh, but her death comes out of nowhere her being in the room really comes out of nowhere and and I don't feel that she served then as a character but uh, I'm going to talk about that when we talk about themes a little bit. Yeah, Father Veronica was, uh, to me, the most interesting, the most compelling character in the book. Uh, but I wound up feeling unsatisfied because I didn't think we got enough of her. And and in in the same way that I felt like we got a lot of Pear, we saw a lot of the story from Pear's perspective, or at least some bits, some important bits of the story from Pear's perspective, and got to know him more as a, a character. I wanted to see more of Father Veronica. Uh, in fact, frankly, I think that I probably had a secret wish for Father Veronica to be the point of view character, to maybe be the narrator of this story in some way because I found her absolutely fascinating and, and absolutely compelling as well. Uh, one of the things we should say about Father Veronica, of course, is that she is a woman. And I think you're right when you say, hey, these priests must be celibate. That is something that seems to have been carried over from the Catholic Church. But uh, of course, women being priests is not a thing that is uh, is possible in the Catholic Church right now. So this is a bit of the uh, the history of the future here. This is the, the what the far future is going to be like. The celibacy doesn't go away, but women can be priests as well as men in this uh, this distant future. Yeah. And I, and I purposefully use the word represent a lot in my description of the character because she is more of a uh... Uh, a character who represents ideals, kind of like Beatrice in, in, in the Divine Comedy, more than she is a character who is really uh, about something for herself. Though she is, uh, Richard Paul Russo does add a lot of depth to her character, but for me, she really becomes a, a representation of ideals, which means she needs to be fridged, which is something we've talked about on uh, Elder Sign quite a bit. When Rather than have her enter into a relationship with Bartolomeo, uh, a physical relationship to admit her feelings for him, to cross that line, we have Bartolomeo find a woman on the ship. Pear kind of finds this woman on the ship during a, a Lower Decks party scene that looks like Father Veronica so that Bartolomeo can have sex with somebody like Father Veronica, but not Father Veronica. And that, to me, was a, a, a strange narrative choice rather than really complicate this relationship and bring Father Veronica's uh, faith into question or to be tempted in an interesting way to have Bartolomeo be a real tempter of Father Veronica to complicate his character maybe as uh, even being a villain in somebody else's story, which I think would have served the moral gray area that everybody's operating in on, on a, in an interesting way and served the themes of the stories more interestingly than have Father Veronica be Beatrice to Bartolomeo's Dante. Well, I think that's what the story would have looked like if it had been Father Veronica's story and not Bartolomeo's story. And as you mentioned, Brandon, one of the things that I really love about Father Veronica is that uh, she does not care about preserving the institutions uh, of the ship, the institutions on the ship. She cares about the people. She sees that the institutions are meant to serve the people. And if they are not doing that, then she will bypass them or, or even 
confront them, challenge those institutions. And that was a pretty big theme of this book, though it is not the theme or motif that I have picked to uh, to, to focus on here. But let's move into that segment of the show. And I'll, I'll go first here. The The theme that I actually want to, to talk about is, is doubt, or maybe uncertainty might be the better way to put it. But religious doubt, religious uncertainty is maybe the most on-the-nose example of doubt being a big part of the story. Bishop Soldano is an atheist. Father Veronica struggled with religious doubt early in her life, and, and especially with theodicy, the, the problem of evil, until she actually received a message from God in the wilderness. And, and now she follows that guidance more than she follows the received teachings of the church. But in addition to religious doubt, right, the questions of loyalty really drive the first act. Uh, people are doubting their friendships. They're doubting the command structure. Uh, also, people on the ship don't even know their origins. They have no historical records. So there's there's no way to really know anything with any kind of certainty, uh, even just about what the ship is, about what the world these people live in is, right? Uh, knowledge is not something that is seemingly even attainable on this on this ship, in this community. So nothing can be trusted. And so everyone has doubts about things. Uh, and then, of course, there is also lots of doubt uh, about what to do with the alien ship, right? Should we nope out of here? Should we keep exploring it? Should we take it with us? Uh, lots of doubt about what to do. And nobody makes any good decisions uh, until the very very, very end of the the story. And it requires a a huge sacrifice. All of this doubt, this uncertainty is rooted in the fact that nobody knows what the ship's mission is. And so rather than uh, having a good leader or a tradition that expresses to other people who step up and rise to, to power positions in the ship of what the ship's mission is, or even creating a new one, a strong captain saying, this is what we're here to do. This is what we're doing under my rule. This lack of mission has led to a real fraying of the culture on the ship where you have all these different groups, all these contingents, everybody moving in different directions. And it allows the bishop to say the ship is the world where it's always been the case. And we shouldn't be looking for other places to live. We shouldn't be trying to settle other places. Uh, everything that we encounter that has intelligent life in it is the potential to carry great evil. This is where God wants us to be. To Nikos not really having any commentary other than, okay, like let's explore and put, putting other people in charge and holding the bag. It's It's that there's no uniform mission for this group of people who are on a ship which is clearly man-made in guiding them in any sort of real distinct direction. So it it really stems from this place of what are these old machines for? What is the ship for? What are we for therefore in servicing the ship? Is it just, are we just servicing it to keep ourselves alive? Are there other humans? And and it plays out in every element of this story. I, I think that's really fascinating. I wouldn't have thought to categorize uh, doubt or uncertainty as a real core theme of the book, but but as you presented it, it, it's one of the core themes, if not the core motif, maybe of the storytelling. The people without an orienting principle to guide them, and the way that has frayed at the culture of the ship. 
Right. And we'll talk about this in the next segment when we get into the titles, but that is kind of what the metaphor of a ship of fools is all about. Well, Brandon, I'm interested in what you picked out to to talk about here, what you saw in the book as uh, in terms of thematic resonance. <laughs> well, I kind of took an easy route or maybe a needlessly <laughs> complicated one in in looking at themes and motifs of the ship. I think maybe when I get done explaining what I, what I think of as going on here, uh, which is in two parts, that it will probably align with doubt or uncertainty. Uh, so I, I saw the two major themes of the story because they're expressly placed in the conversations people have around what's going on around these uncertainties that you brought up as being good versus evil and uh, free will versus fate or determinism. I mean, we see fate on the back of this novel as kind of the selling point. What is this ship's fate? Um, but there's a big conversation in the story about free will. So I'm going to try to tie these two together because I don't think it's really good versus evil. That's a theme of the story. I think it's the values of having empathy or compassion for the individual versus the way that power groups people into categories and devalues the individual. And this is played out on the micro scale of the ship in the characters of Father Veronica and the Bishop in Bartolomeo versus the Captain, and then as a whole as the Argonos versus the alien ship. And I think because everybody is sort of operating in this moral gray zone, because there is no mission, um, and this these people don't have arguments about how to accomplish the mission, it's what the mission is in the first place. The, I think because this is the case, this moral gray zone that people are operating in, that the the good versus evil theme, as it's developed in the story, ex is expressed more in terms of absurdism, that kind of uh, cousin of existentialism, in that it's about the way that our actions are rooted in contingencies that we may have no control over that lead to outcomes that we also may be unable to control. And what matters is really the choice to take action rather than the choice to abdicate responsibility in taking action. And we see this in the way that Bartolomeo is almost an existential hero in the vein of Sartre's Anton Roquentin from Naja or Merceau from Camus' The Stranger or, you know, The Outsider, as it's sometimes translated. <laughs> uh, but because the book frames these ideas in good versus evil, I think this theme feels a little bit muddled. Uh, Father Veronica's death, then, I think, is certainly in line with an absurdism, uh, and nothing really comes of it, so who knows? And by absurdism, I mean these are nothing that happens is necessary. It's all the playing out of contingencies based on people's choice to take action. And, and this is something that Bartolomeo carries a lot then as the narrator of this story that Father Veronica expresses in her conversation with him about free will. And again, that's about free will versus fate or determinism. She says God made us all to have free will in order that we can express our love. Uh, God doesn't want automatons loving him. He wants people who choose to love him. This is an old theological argument about theophany. Uh, why is there pain? It's because people are free to do evil. God doesn't want them to, but God would rather have people love him well of their own choice than to 
never have pain in the world. Uh, this is an argument I, I didn't really find particularly convincing in the way it's presented in this story. Um, but I can imagine the first time coming across this argument for free will that I would be blown away by it. But I get the sense that we're looking really at whether or not things could be otherwise, whether or not anything that happens is necessary or contingent. But again, Nikos, the captain, uses the idea of determinism to comfort Bartolomeo about the choices he made leading up to the need to abandon the need to abandon the Argonos. Argonos basically saying that they were always fated to run into the alien ship. They could never outrun it. They would always find it in every scenario of them coming through the galaxy that this alien ship was always going to come out to them. And so maybe the alien ship represents determinism or fate or something like that. And in the end, it doesn't matter the choices that Bartolomeo made because the way this played out with them discovering the alien ship was the only possible outcome in Nikos's mind. So you have this real sense that determinism could be a comfort, free will could be a comfort, but the subjective experiences that Bartolomeo has and the responsibility of the choices that he made really weigh on him. So whether it's fate or free will, we have this sense of the absurdism of the existential choice of that third way that those things don't matter because the choices that we make and how we act in the world are the things that we're responsible for, whether they have good or evil outcomes. So that's kind of how I uh, saw the themes and motifs playing out in this novel. Well, I love this reading of the text, and I think we can see the ways that believing in free will versus uh, believing in in fate or, or determinism uh, may reflect in some of the other character attributes, especially if we're taking Father Veronica and Captain Nikos as kind of the, the emblems of these two uh, these two philosophical, two theological positions. That uh, Nikos, Captain Nikos, believing in determinism uh, is pessimistic, right? He's almost fatalistic. Actually actually, and uh, has uh, an alcohol problem, has a, a substance abuse problem, and uh, has to have an open marriage, uh, but then lament the fact that his wife doesn't feel bonded with him uh, when he's getting ready to give up his life for the crew and so on, where Father Veronica then, who is uh, the person who believes in, in free will, uh, seems to be the happiest, maybe even the only happy person on the ship, the only person with any real uh, contentment and any real joy uh, in her life that at least we see in, in the story. Yeah, I think that's right as well. Uh, though she does have these pits of despair, these periods of despair that she experiences, she's content because she's serving people. She wants people to love one another and to choose that, not to be forced into it by some institution or power structure. So she's content to move through the ship because she's, okay carrying around the burden of the decisions that she makes. And, and I really think then that the characters of this story are expressing beliefs, which is why I feel no matter what any character believes in this story, it's about how their beliefs color their actions and whether or not they're really willing to take responsibility for it, which feels to me 
more existential or more absurd, maybe than Richard Paul Russo intended. Well, if we ever see him at a con, I would love to ask him about this, because I, I think now that you've presented it this way, I mean, it does feel very much like that is kind of the central question of the of of the book. And, and certainly, this is a common theme in science fiction. I did not read this book in, in high school. I guess I never said this is my first and, and only Richard Paul Russo novel as well. And I'm, I'm really glad to have read it and will probably be, uh, be seeking out some more of his books in the future. But when I was in middle school, when I was a young adolescent, early adolescence, uh, Orson Scott Card was my my go-to science fiction writer. And uh, it's either Speaker for the Dead or, or Xenocide, the books two and three in the, the, the Ender series. One of those books has an entire chapter that's just called Free Will. And that was the first time I had encountered that question. I'd actually not ever encountered it at church in any way or at school in any way. Uh, I don't know. Does anyone encounter interesting ideas in, uh, in middle school in any way? Uh, <laughs> but certainly had not. And it blew my mind. And I can envision uh, 12-year-old Glenn reading this book instead of Speaker for the Dead and and having that same kind of uh, response. So uh, I'm really glad that that was in here. And I, I like your reading of it. Well, we should we should move on to talking about the, the titles a little bit. I think this is going to line up with, uh, I think this will line up with some of the themes that we've pointed out here. And of course, we've only pointed out some of the themes. There's a lot going on in this book for sure. But because the book has two titles, it has the American title and then the alternate UK title. Uh, I think there's a lot to talk about here, but let's start with the American title, which presumably is the title that Russo had chosen, though that is maybe never true of any book. I mean, I think editors and publishers may have uh, often a lot more to do with the titles of books than authors, but uh, it's the first title anyway. The Ship of Fools is a long lived a uh, long-standing concept in Western thought. It's an allegory from Plato's Republic. Uh, where it's really a description of a democracy, uh, but maybe really we should say it's a description of any society that is not governed by experts, which is what Plato is yearning for so much in the Republic. And it then makes its way into almost our everyday parlance, I I guess, beginning in the late Middle Ages. There's a a late medieval satirical poem in German by Sebastian Brandt. This is a scathing critique of late medieval civilization. Everyone is a fool, uh, so the the voyage of this ship is completely doomed. Uh, this is actually, I think, where a lot of the intense critique of of both uh, secular and uh, religious institutions comes from, and that's something we definitely are seeing here in this book. But uh, maybe the broader question is, how does all of this apply here? In what way is this a ship of fools? And in what way is Rousseau engaging with this uh, long tradition of the idea of a ship of fools? Yeah, I mean, apart from... Plato, apart from showing up in Plato's Republic, uh, which, I mean, if people want to look it up, I I did. It's in book six on page 488 of the standard pagination of of Plato's Republic. It's a famous painting by Hieronymus Bosch. Also, this is discussed at length in Foucault's work, Madness and Civilization, which was kind of his breakout text, uh, which I read a huge chunk of, but can't remember because that was 10 years ago. So (laughs) that's unfortunate. But I think we're... Yeah, we're absolutely looking at Plato's Republic here as the source of the title. And and in rereading that allegory after reading this story, it's clear that this is a ship of fools, that the Argonos is a ship of fools because there is no real respect for expertise or the maintenance work that people do to keep the ship going. There's a lot of forgotten technology on the ship. And what's favored over expertise is the ability to accumulate 
power. And this is a real problem in, I think, 19th century and 20th century politics, uh, at least as you know, Hannah Arendt talks about it in The Origins of Totalitarianism. Uh, and, and this was a huge problem in the Russian communist revolutions as well. And maybe every communist revolution is that people who have expertise are kind of a threat to the new structure of power. And so we saw we saw this threat of those who are experts lead to directly to the starvation of a lot of people in Russia as kind of the the middle class farmers who were real experts on the land and farming techniques were killed uh, by mobs. So I, I think that this is a, sh a ship of fools in the sense that this sense of what it takes to keep a civilization afloat, to keep it alive, is is now about the oppression of those who understand and know the work in, in or, by those who are in power uh, in order to maintain a status quo. And, and so the experts aren't in charge. The people who know how to be political are in charge. And the experts are the underclass. And I think that that is what we're seeing in this story. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is something that has been resonating a lot with our contemporary early 21st century civilization, as well as our civilization becomes increasingly more technical. And we are all still trying to be a democracy at the, the same time. There's some of these uh, uh, in, inherent uh, kind of embedded uh, tensions that Plato called attention to, uh, you know, 2,500 years ago or, or, or so. Well, let's talk about the alternate title here, the UK title, Unto Leviathan. This actually comes from the book itself. This comes from the story itself, where Bishop Soldano, uh, maybe around the, the third act, I guess, quotes Second Esdras, which is an apocryphal book of the Old Testament. And the the passage he quotes comes from a variant of the creation story that we get in Genesis. And, and here's uh, what he says. But unto Leviathan thou gavest the seventh part, namely the moist, and hast kept him to be devoured of whom thou wilt, and when— and that is the King James translation, but uh, I would probably render it like this. And you gave to Leviathan the seventh part, namely the waters, and have kept him so that he can be eaten by whoever you want, whenever you want. But the bishop here in the in the book, in the, the dialogue that we get, thinks that this line refers to their present situation, that it's not the waters or the moist, it, it's outer space. And, and maybe the line should read, so that Leviathan can eat whatever he wants, rather than that Leviathan can be eaten by people. And he sees this as a, a metaphor for what's going on with the alien spaceship, though I will say that that's terrible scholarship. That's just not what the text says uh, at <laughs> all. But one of the things that really struck me about these two titles and, and the differences between them is that Ship of Fools, the title Ship of Fools, clues us into pay attention to the people on the ship, that uh, this is what the story is about. The story is about the society on this ship. But Unto Leviathan tells us that this is a story about a monster. Right. And not just a monster, the religious aspects of the story as well, the conflicts in belief systems, in atheism and Christianity and agnosticism. And, and I... I was thinking that as well. I, I wonder if Unto Leviathan is, is maybe a better title for the story because that is really what the story's caught up in with Father Veronica and Bartolomeo kind of being the two main characters in a sense for, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I agree. I think Ship of Fools is a great title for the first act. 
But I do think that Unto Leviathan is a better title for Acts 2 and Acts 3. And, you know, yeah, that's two thirds of the book. So, yeah, I think I preferred Unto Leviathan as a title than Ship of Fools. Yeah, I had the same exact feeling as you, actually, that <laughs> Ship of Fools is probably a title that Richard Paul Russo got into his head and was like, I'm going to write a book about this. And then he's like, well, that was only 40 pages. I got to come up with a plot for a whole novel that I sold my publisher. So uh, he went with... Until Levi- he, so he went with this, these exploring these other themes and, and stuff as well that are really developed in the in the last two acts of the book. But the first act is definitely Ship of Fools. Well, with the title dispensed of here, uh, let's uh, let's talk about the craft. We're going to break this down into three components, uh, and you know, by craft we mean writing craft. Uh, we're going to talk about storytelling. We're going to talk about the prose, or you know, the, the wordsmithing, uh, and then we're going to talk about the world building. But we'll start with the storytelling. Brandon, what are some aspects of the storytelling that that jumped out to you, either positively or, or negatively? Yeah, I mean, I I have to say, for the most part, I really enjoyed the general plot of the story, and so I want to look at the the plot or the multiple plots that are in the story because I think plotting is something that Richard Paul Russo did very well uh, for the first two-thirds of the story. But by the time I realized what was going to go on and how the story was going to wrap up, wrap up, I left a little I was left a little let down by the plotting. So the what I initially thought was a real strength of the story and the storytelling uh, was something that really kind of let me down by the end. I will say in terms of story craft, in terms of the writing, this story moves quickly. It's a consistent voice, tone, style, or the blending of styles between horror, political intrigue, uh, and and religious conversation are all blended very nicely, and nothing feels off-tone or off-style in the story. Uh, but the general plot of the story to me is all the space exploration stuff that seems to me like what you do when you're working with the Generation Starship. But there are a ton of plot threads that dangle out there and don't really go anywhere. The mutiny is one. The presence of characters like Francis and Catherine, who we haven't even talked about, but seem important to Bartolomeo, uh, are other kind of plot threads or character arcs that I don't get really necessarily in the story. The bishop's interaction with the machines early on, though we've talked about that and the way it kind of comes back when he steals technology from the alien ship. The church's archive, you know, that's a plot that I loved that had absolutely no bearing on the story one way or another, which is why I'm reading this novel as an absurdist kind of uh, (laughs) philosophy rather than kind of engaging with the other things that are present in the book. You know, even what's going on with the alien ship is left dangling a little too much for my sensibilities as a reader, for my preferences as a reader. We do get the presence of an alien in this story. And maybe we're supposed to think of the aliens as like predators or something like that. But we actually don't see the aliens do anything that brings harm to any character in this story. And I guess we're just supposed to filter what objectively the aliens are doing or what their mode of being is through the beliefs of the characters. And I'm just not sure that this works in the in the context of the story. It doesn't quite hang together. I, I did keep turning the pages. Overall, I enjoyed the book. I liked being in both spacecrafts and the exploration plots were done well, but... Uh, in terms of the total coherence of all the plots, the the total hanging together of the plots, uh, it it just left a little to be desired for me in, in my preferences, my uh, sensibilities as a reader. 
It felt to me like the first act was a totally different book, actually. And that's the part of the book that felt very much like Gene Wolfe's uh, silhouette, which uh, we're, I guess, kind of in the middle of on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast right now, that is also about a spaceship out in uh, deep space on uh, a mission looking for uh, a new planet for humans to, to live on. And there's a mutiny and also some Lovecraftian uh, weird fiction horror going on as as well. But it felt like Russo started a book like that and then wrote something else uh, for X2 and X3, uh, that he discovered something in the process of writing and changed his mind about what the story was going to be. And I liked the first act just fine. And I liked the second and third act just fine, but they didn't feel like they were glued together. Or maybe it felt like they were glued together rather than stitched together. Maybe that's the metaphor I'm searching for there, even though I liked them both independent of each other. I think there's some really positive things going on here in the storytelling, some lessons that I I want to take to heart in my own writing. Uh, For one thing, Russo does, I think, a really good job of uh, using the nature of the first-person account here, where we know that this is clearly written after the fact. It's clearly written after these events, so we know that the narrator is going to make it. And so there's an element of suspense then as the bad stuff starts to happen, uh, rather than... uh, rather than of of surprise. And I think that's a really great move. And at its core, this book, at least Acts 2 and 3, is a mystery story, right? You investigate the signal. You investigate the alien ship. You investigate the unconscious human that they rescue from the alien ship, uh, who turns out to, you know, actually be uh, an alien in disguise. And these beats here of, uh, of uh, like a detective story, I guess, those all really worked. Uh, there were also lots of crisis points. And so there was always some kind of escalating tension. There's also a baddie who is clearly a baddie, but then turns out isn't maybe the baddie. And that's always a good trick, right? Kind of a a red herring there with who's the the antagonist, who's the the villain, who's the baddie of this story. Those were all some some very uh, clever uh, tricks in the storytelling craft that uh, I, I just don't use that much myself. And I thought Russo really had great command of all of those. I agree with you. I like the detective stuff. I mean, like I said, the exploration plots, you're calling them like investigating plots or like detective plots. You know, we're referring to the same stuff here. For me, all the exploration stuff worked really well. And I'm going to talk about in in, when we talk about the prose of the story, uh, how well the horror worked in this story by reading uh, Passage. Well, yeah, let's move into talking about the prose. And the the horror aspects of this story were my favorite bits, but somehow, and yours too, but somehow we've barely talked about them here. So, uh, but before we get to reading some some of our favorite passages, uh, let's let's do a bit of an assessment on the prose. I did not feel that the wordsmithing here, that uh, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph level, that the prose was very good in this book. The, it's a first-person narrative, but the story's really told like a third-person story. I mean, whole pages of this book are third-person dialogue rather than, uh, I don't know, a, a summary of what happened, the way that a person would tell a story to someone else, or, or even just write a log entry, which is actually kind of the fiction of this, that this, this text is Bartolomeo writing down what has happened and he's going to launch it into space just in case they don't make it to the planet so that someone someday will find their story. This is not the way to do that, right? If we were actually trying to do that, if we were stuck on a spaceship and weren't feeling the need to do that, we would not have whole pages of third-person dialogue. And so to me, that felt very sloppy. And you you did say, Brandon, you felt that the voice of the, the narrator was consistent throughout. And I think that's true, but I also thought it was weak. Uh, I will say writing a strong first-person story is extraordinarily difficult. And 
I, I think that this is also a, an area where Rousseau maybe started out to write the book in one way and kind of wound up writing it in another way, but didn't go back and just change the book to a third person account. Uh, and because the first personists of the story, I don't think it really matters that much. There's not really any reason for this story to be in first person. I think the book would be vastly improved if it were told from a limited third person perspective. That also would have allowed us to get more of Father Veronica or more of what we liked about Father Veronica as well. So to me, I thought that was kind of a weak point of the book. Yeah, it didn't really strike me as as being a problem as much. You're right that the prose is very simple and very uh, accessible to any grade of reader, I think. And for me, I, I don't know if I'm going to call that a weakness. I will say that if the prose were any more dense, I don't think I would have been able to enjoy this book as much as I did because it there's too much going on. So the simplicity of the prose, uh, it, it helps the story because you, I can move through it quickly. I, I don't think I would have liked any of these ideas or any of these plots explored more deeply or in more detail or with more density of uh, sentences because it doesn't need it. You're right that the choice to have a first-person narrator is a, a problem because we have two points in the story where the narrator is choosing to kind of write this chronicle, to write this history of what's happened on the ship. The first is when he's in prison for like eight months. Also, I mean, that's another plot element that's a real problem is is putting... Uh, I just I can't get into all the, the plot struggles I had in reading the story. But I think the prose strangely works in favor of the number of things that are going on in the book. But whether that's a strength or a weakness is kind of... kind of speaks to the core sorts of problems of this novel as a form of storytelling, as the choice of storytelling and as as what's going on. Having a character narrate uh, a couple chapters going through months of being in prison and wondering what's going on doesn't actually end up serving the story in any way. And so to me, that's really the issue of the prose is that it kind of serves the story, but it's not strong prose. I don't know if that made sense, but that's where I land on my assessment of the prose. Yeah, that did make sense. And I'm certainly not advocating for a richer uh, Proustian or even Wolfian uh, narrative here of the story, because I think that you're right. All of the things that I just praised about the storytelling, all of that would actually be lost if we were getting that type of dense narrative. I really just wanted this to be a third person story because there were so many places where the the way in which scenes were being narrated took me out of the, the story. There were places where I mean, there are paragraphs where Bartolomeo is telling us this story and says that he has to guess at what people were were thinking uh, or feeling in this scene because, you know, he's not omniscient. He's not a third person narrator. He's a first person narrator. But then in the same paragraph, we'll actually make indicative statements about the emotional states of people as if he does know them, as if he is actually an omniscient third person narrator. And those sorts of things I, I found kind of jarring, though they don't seem to have bothered you nearly as much as they, they bothered me. I mean, he does this in particular with Bishop Soldano, I think. And that's that's the real issue is the, you know, if uncertainty, if doubt is a theme, we have a narrator, a first person narrator who whose reliability and certainty we need to trust in order to get 
the impact of the alien spaceship being evil across and it's not gotten across. That is the core problem of this story is that what the aliens actually are cannot be communicated to us through the subjective experiences and beliefs of a first person narrator who has to guess at what other people's motivations and subjective feelings are. To me, that is that is the the kind of tear in the thread uh, or the warp of this story. All right. Well, we have uh, we've each been critical about one aspect of the uh, the writing of this uh, of this story. So let's talk about some things that we did like about the writing. We've each brought a, a passage that we that we really liked. And uh, Brandon, I'm uh, you've already teased what yours is, and that I will say it was actually mine too. But I knew you were going to pick it because <laughs> we've been friends for I don't know almost twenty years now. So I knew you were going to pick it, and uh, so I did not. But uh, let's hear that one first. Well, I'm going to be honest with you when when we were talking a little bit about this story off air. And you said you also liked the horror stuff in the story. I was a little bit surprised. I thought I was in the clear, uh, really liking the horror aspects <laughs> of the story and choosing this passage. Uh, and uh, well, hopefully it's not the exact same one, but we'll see. Mine comes from pages of uh, 76 and 77 in the text that we have, which is the first encounter with the horror of the story, the horror elements, which I loved. It's spooky stuff. It worked well. Father Veronica and... Uh, Bartolomeo have just found this chamber on the steamy jungle uh, alien planet and they are going down into it and this is the first thing they see in the open doorway bones hanging bones skeletons rattling and clattering in the air currents tightly woven ropes knotted on large and vicious hooks embedded in the ceiling then noosed around the nearly fleshless necks of discolored skeletons with skulls grinning and staring at us from shadowed, empty sockets. No one moved. No one said a word. How many were there? How many hanging skeletons in this chamber that seemed to stretch on endlessly in all directions? Too many to distinguish. Too many to count. Only gradually did more details become apparent, not because they had been hidden, but because it was all too much to take in at once, and only bit by bit could it be processed. Maybe not even then. Perhaps there would never be enough time to assimilate everything we saw in this chamber. That, after all, might be best. And from here, the horror just ramps up. But I I thought this was a great introduction to the horror elements of this story, and, and it continues to work really well for me throughout. It does. This is an amazing passage. This is my favorite passage as well. This is the one that I was going to pick and then realized that there was no way you were not going to pick it as well. But I did have it. I did have it marked here just in case you uh, you did not. But yeah, this is I mean, this this was the point in the book. I'd been, you know, it is page 76 and 77, as you say. And I had been enjoying the book already up to this point. But this was the moment in the book when I, I sat up and just said, yes, yes, this is this is my jam here. It was really evocative. I mean, I got goosebumps reading that. I immediately want to know, of course, right? I think every reader does immediately wants to know what is going on here. Who did this? Why did they do this? And there's a lot of suspense around this. And and all throughout the the, the book and, and the horror elements of the book, which really mostly are taking place on the alien spaceship, Russo plays with two different tropes of Lovecraftian horror. One of them is madness, and the other is alienness, uh, creatures maybe that we we can't understand. And 
we are not at all sure until the very end of the book whether or not and 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 maybe we're never and we're not at all sure maybe even at the end of the book what has actually happened to these people if it is that the aliens have actually killed them in this manner this gruesome horrifying manner or if they've taken their own lives because we actually do see uh, a character uh, who's exploring the alien ship be really affected by the haunted houseness of the the ship and take his own life in a, in a sort of uh, craze as where he says he's going to abandon God because he's found uh, something else to replace God with and then slits his own throat in front of people. And Russo, in all his imagery here in the horror, is playing with this idea that maybe all of these people went mad and killed themselves. Maybe they were killed by some hostile, incomprehensible Lovecraftian force. And I really love the way that he he kind of dances on that knife's edge there between these two modes of Lovecraftian horror. And this scene gets repeated as well on the alien spaceship. They find a room on the alien spaceship that resembles this room that has uh, also people dangling from it. Uh, And I thought about picking that passage. Then I thought, no, that's too much for a listener uh, in one one go. There's a reason that Rousseau separated those passages by like 150, 150 pages or so. So what I have picked here as a passage that I really loved is on page 302 of uh, our edition of the book. This is when Father Veronica has put on a a spacesuit. She's gone outside to be alone and float in space and and look at the ship. Uh, She's meditating. She's she's praying, communing with God. in some way. And Bartolomeo has followed her out there. This is actually where they have the conversation you brought up earlier, Brandon, uh, about the fact that she's aware that Bartolomeo is in, in love with her. But this is the description that we get of, of something that, that happens while Bartolomeo is out there. It started so slowly that I was barely aware of it at first. A diffuse flicker of color on the Argonus hull. I was watching Father Veronica and only dimly sensed it in the periphery of my vision. I almost ignored it. Then I realized something unusual was occurring, and I turned to look at the growing bloom of color. Just as I did, it silently, almost blindingly, exploded to life. Christ on the cross. The enormous stained-glass window at the head of the cathedral, which had always been too dull, indistinct, and chaotic to reveal any concrete images, now blazed in the depths of space, burning in the side of the Argonos. The church's beacon to the stars. The crucifixion. I think this is just a beautiful bit of of wordsmithing here. This is a beautiful bit of prose. Uh, But I also just really love the idea that this generation spaceship has a stained glass window that is not meant to light up inside the cathedral, but is meant to light up from the inside of the cathedral. It's for the people outside the ship to see, not the people inside the cathedral, that this is a, a ship on some kind of holy mission that we we don't ever know what that is but i love the the imagery of this it is gorgeous and that whole spacewalk scene is beautiful that that was a a moment in the book that really deeply that, that i deeply engaged with not just for the imagery and the strangeness of the imagery of having a a ship with this image kind of be the beacon that that might be the first thing Uh, People outside the ship or people watching for ships on other planets might see the strangeness of that. But for the full encounter that Bartolomeo has with this image sort of for the first time. And I I really loved this scene as well. I thought this was one of the strongest uh, portions of the novel. This spacewalk scene worked 
exceedingly well. I think in general for me, one of the strongest features of the book, one of the best features of the book is this type of stuff, really the the world building that Russo does here, envisioning this speculative world that is different from ours. Uh, I mean, uh, for me, the ship is a really fantastic setting. It's a really great setting. It does have a real Gene Wolfe feel to it, even if the, the book is actually uh, lacking, I guess, Wolfe's dazzling prose we've talked about already. But we don't ever learn very much about the, the, the ship and its history because the inhabitants don't know any of it, right? The records were all destroyed 300 years ago, and we don't ever get anything really uh, that comes from looking through the church's records, as you've been lamenting several times, Brandon. But, but that had a real <laughs> that had a real Gene Wolfe feel uh, to it for, for me, right? This idea that we're only going to understand this world from the perspective of the people living in it. And uh, also the idea that there's a, a formal church organization on the, the ship and that it is clearly central both to the design of the ship, right? The cathedral is the center of the ship. This crucifix is visible from space. Uh, but also it's central to the society of the ship. And I, I found that to be really interesting. And as we're reading, right, we have to ask how that happened, what the original mission of the ship was. And uh, we also have to wonder how much has changed since the ship was launched, since we don't even know when that was. So for me, the, the world building uh, of the sort of three ways we've broken down this book in terms of storytelling, prose, and world building, for me, the world building was probably the, the, the area where Russo was the, the strongest. Uh, how did you feel about Russo's world building? Uh, again, it, it, there's a lot of strengths and weaknesses there. I, I liked his hand waving away some of like the technological problems, like the harvester, uh, why they don't stay on planets for long, what's going on. I mean, th- th- this is 14 years since they found another habitable planet, um, and the political tensions are kind of what keep anything from changing, of letting people get off the ship, of of uh, living on a planet's surface. And I I was troubled by the church's archives here because to me it highlighted a real problem of the world building, which is that Toller, the ship's historian, is like 114, 115 years old, something like that, 110. I don't don't know. He's over 100 years old. He's still cooking. He's still doing all right. But somebody that old who's clearly a generation or two ahead in terms of age of the captain and the bishop didn't know the previous bishop didn't like these political situations weren't always the case so how is it that in the past 300 years nobody has shared the fact of this church's archive with anybody there are no rumors uh to me the way that the world building and plots sometimes collided or conflicted it chafed a little for me in parts of the story but i really loved the way that russo was able to give us technical explanations without making us kind of focus on them and wonder would that work is that a problem and there were plays where the world building there were places where the world building and the plots coalesced really well like the ability to live on these shuttles for extended period of periods of time while they're exploring the alien ship really plays a major role in the resolution of the story. So I do like the way a lot of the world building and plots work together. But like I said, it's a little it was a little too threadbare uh, for me in many cases. The archive was was just one of them. But I think there are examples throughout the, the novel where we see plot arcs are introduced that dangle in order to serve 
in order to solve a problem of storytelling and and the world building as i said sometimes functioned like that right yeah i had some questions about the age of the historian as well that's the first instance that we get that's that's the first indication we get that people are living human lifespans that are longer than what we are living right now that's not anything that's fleshed out but i had the same maybe issue that you did which is so how long then has this been going on where did this uh loss of knowledge actually happen and why does someone who's 114 years old not know more about things than he actually does this is a problem we do in in Gene Wolfe as well. In fact, when we did Mountains Like Mice, uh, which was a very early Gene Wolfe story, I had some real questions about the way that he was thinking about the transmission of knowledge from generation to generation. Because one of the things that we, we know in this story is that the loss of the ship's records uh, is wrapped up in an event called the repudiation, uh, in which uh, the records were destroyed and all sorts of other chaotic things happened on the ship. The ship was actually very badly damaged and needed to be repaired and so on. People are aware that that happened, that the repudiation happened, and they're vaguely aware that that happened two or three centuries ago. But if it happened 200 years ago, and Toller's 114, and his parents lived to be at least 114 as well, uh, then his parents would have lived through that, right? And even if it's 300 years, then his grandparents did. So... I felt like that was maybe not enough time for this information to have been lost. That was something that that, that struck me as kind of a problem. But again, this is something that uh, Gene Wolfe does all the time as well, is, is think that uh, people forget information, uh, sort of cultural knowledge more quickly than I, as a historian, certainly uh, think that they do. But we can but we can actually take this to, to launch into uh, one of our last segments here, which is uh, questions. And uh, one of the things that you get to do when you commission a bonus episode like this is you get to tell us what you want us to talk about. And so we've got some questions from the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. And the the first of them is about this repudiation. And the, the question that uh, he poses is, has the crew of this ship missed the rapture? Uh, he's wondering if the this mysterious but misunderstood event called the repudiation uh, might not actually have been the the rapture or at least... Uh, related to the rapture in some way. And he's wondering then if the ship is just wandering a universe that's been already emptied or largely emptied anyway by its creator. And maybe all that's left are these Lovecraftian aliens. What a great idea for this story. If that were the case, I don't, I don't see textual evidence for that necessarily, but the presence of the aliens is really difficult for me to untangle in this story. Are they demons? Are they made by God? Is this uh, a case of evolution? Are these pe- characters, are these aliens given free will as well? Or are they are they really just kind of a harbinger of fate, a bringer of fate to the ship, to these humans? Uh, is this hell that these characters are living in or a limbo or something like that? All great questions, but I don't see this apocalyptic Christianity being presented in anybody's views or beliefs in this story. Um, I think the type of Christianity that's being advocated for in this story is the we are living here now. Let us demonstrate compassion and love and uh, service to one another. 
So I don't I didn't get that sense while reading the story. What did, did you did you pick up on that at all, Glenn? This was not a question that occurred to me while reading it, but I think it's an amazing question. And I think you definitely could read the story this way, and it'd be a very cool reading of this book. But I think something that's maybe embedded in that reading here uh, is that the ship itself is alone, right? That maybe everyone has gone up in the the rapture except for the people on this ship. But of course, we know that there were humans on this this planet that we start off at, at the beginning. So there may still be other humans out there, which is, of course, what they're they're hoping for, or at least everyone who's not the command crew anyway is uh, is hoping for. And, and, and in fact, that's what they start looking through the church records for, is trying to find information about planets that have settlements on them. So I'm not sure that that's something that Russo really was was putting into the story either, but I think that it's nonetheless a reading that we could we could have. And like you, I do think that there is not enough about the aliens in this book, uh, and that if this were a story about the rapture, this were a story about the universe being emptied by its creator, and now the playground of uh, the adversary, the playground of of Satan, that we would have gotten some more. Uh, about the, the the aliens here, which uh, don't seem necessarily to be anything other than agents of of chaos, right? In fact, in some ways, they actually kind of reminded me of the the Reavers from uh, from uh, Firefly. Yeah, and I think this reference to the Leviathan. Uh, this is something I, I wanted to say earlier, but I, I just remembered it. Is that the Leviathan is sort of the I don't know ancient symbol the the biblical symbol at least in this in this time period uh early early time period of the the ocean the sea representing chaos and the leviathan or just the giant sea creature or whale being kind of the the emblem of that chaos the the real danger the so i think chaos is is the right word to use as well um but it's also a kind of a kind of reckoning we see in second estras that not only is that chapter that this line found in that the bishop uses that's until leviathan about the uh, an alternate creation myth but it's also about uh, a judgment uh, passed on on the people of earth so th- they're both kind of at play here i think yeah, I think so, for sure. Well, we've got another question here, too, which is uh, that at the end of the book, the captain says he knows who Bartolomeo's parents are. He asks Bartolomeo if he wants to know, and he doesn't. So we, the reader, don't ever find out. But do we have any thoughts about this? Can we make some guesses about who Bartolomeo's parents were? Are they characters that we've met in the book? I don't think so. This is something that I think Russo whiffed on a little bit. He didn't build enough tension and mystery or need for Bartolomeo to know who his parents are for this question to come back in a really impactful way at the end of the story. Uh, maybe we could take some guesses who they are, but the only like person old enough here is really Toller, uh, who Bartolomeo does have some kind of affection towards. But I don't think it matters. I think like I think like Bartolomeo senses or feels by the end of the story, it just doesn't really matter who his parents are because he is his decisions and he is responsible and he is made up of the weight he carries and the burden he feels for the responsibility and outcomes of those decisions. So again, we're dealing with in my reading of the story a kind of existential or absurd hero more than a um classic hero's journey hero the fact that he's an orphan really did jump out at me as being like okay we're dealing with hero tropes here but by the end of the story i don't think it matters because he's 
made himself who he is through his decisions and willing to bear the responsibility for those decisions. You didn't think that uh, the bishop was uh, of an older generation than Nikos and Bartolomeo? I, I certainly read him that way. I, I think he was. I think that's fair to say, but maybe a generation between Toller and, and Nikos and Bartolomeo. Yeah. Yeah, my, my thought was, well, one, I don't think that we can know, and I'm not sure that we're supposed to know. But if I had to guess, I guess I think it is the the bishop. I think it's Bishop Soldano. Uh, part of that is just wrapped up in my reading of Bartolomeo as uh, some Tyrion Lannister fan fiction here, and then uh, reading the bishop as Tywin Lannister. And I will confess that as I was reading, uh, that's who I was picturing as the the bishop the, the whole time. All right, Brandon, well, what is a question that you have brought to to me about this text? The only question I really have about this text that, that hangs out to me is about the aliens. Do you think the aliens are hostile to humans? Like, they're a natural adversary. Are they actually hostile to humans? Are humans the ones who drew first blood here? What is your sense on this human-alien conflict in this story? <laughs> I have no answers to any of these questions. <laughs> no! <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, I think that's the choice, right? That's in part what makes this Lovecraftian, right? This That's what makes this Lovecraftian space horror is that it's just that the, the universe is a harsh, uncaring place and it's maybe actively going to, to kill us or it's, you know, indifferent in anyway, that it is full of... Uh, I don't know. It's dark and full of terrorists. I'm just going to keep using Game of Thrones talk here while we're uh, we're having this conversation. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't. I think that we're not supposed to be able to answer those questions. That they are meant to be this just kind of chaotic uh, element of of violence and horror that is out here in the universe. They're not meant to be knowable. I, like you, though, did kind of want them to be knowable. I did want more of a sense of what their motivations were and you know just what they were up to. And part of that was simply because the behavior was something I couldn't make sense of. Uh, if they've got this extraordinary technology, and that's not something we've talked about, but they do, they are technologically far more sophisticated than this generational spaceship is. If that's true, then why are they engaging in trickery? Why are they luring this ship into this trap that they never actually even fully spring? That didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It maybe doesn't have to, but it was something that left me feeling a little uh, ang- a little anxious about, I guess, as, as I was reading the book. Yeah, and, and this introduction of the Sarah character, uh, who is the alien who looks like a human who looks like she has been on board this alien ship in a zone designated for humans. I guess one reading for me is that the this alien ship has gone around to human settlements and have just been killing them ruthlessly. But we don't see the aliens take any action against the humans. We only see them taking on the form of a human, maybe trying to learn how to communicate with the human. And the second that the humans realize that this is an alien, this person is treated with extreme hostility and extreme aggression. They, they kill the alien immediately. This is part of something that's called the the dark forest theory which is like the universe is a dark forest it's this theory is well developed in six and lose which is well described in six and lose you know three body problem in in the that trilogy and it's that the universe is a dark forest and so the best case for survival is to just treat everybody with hostility. I, I don't know if Richard Paul Russo has, has has this idea on his mind. Certainly an idea that's that's been around in science fiction for a while. But 
that's the most I could. That's the most sense I could make of it. That these aliens have been in out out in space for a lot longer. They're way more technologically advanced. They're good at cloaking themselves or being chameleons or uh, integrating themselves with the society. But the second they sense hostility, they go full blast into destruction mode. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what has led them to kill this many humans. I mean, my sense is that they've killed thousands of humans across the, the universe so far, but they don't do anything. They don't act with any hostility initially. In fact, they're kind of inviting to the humans in the story. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of questions I have about this conflict here. And it's a problem for me that we're only getting the sense of what's going on from this subjectivity and filtered through character beliefs, not from any like we found this thing on the ship that makes us know they're hostile. Uh, it's just a question I had. This is a problem in loads of stories. And in particular, it's a problem, maybe not even problem, but just a feature of haunted house stories of where we we want to follow our, our characters as they're exploring this place that's got something spooky and, and potentially menacing going on. And the tropes of those genre uh, the tr- and the tropes of that genre are all about ratcheting up the tension and increasing the stakes as we go as seeing the house uh, or whatever is in the house become more powerful uh, scene to scene or at least act to to act but then we're always left with the question of well wait okay if the the ghost vampire possessed house or just sentient house or whatever it might be was so powerful as to have done all of these things. Uh, why didn't it just do that to begin with, right? Why was it like luring people into this trap? Why didn't the haunting start immediately? Why did it take a month or a week to get going? We always have these types of logistical questions uh, for haunted house stories. And because Russo is really writing a haunted house story here, he's using those same tropes. And so we're left with some of these same questions that maybe we're just better not asking. What what questions did you have about this book, Glenn? Well, naturally, I have brought a question about etymology because that is uh, that's really <laughs> what I'm into. <laughs> uh, the name of the ship, Argonos. What is what is this about? Argonos is a real place on Earth. It's a small town in Cantabria, in northern Spain. I I don't think that's what this is referring to, right? Are we supposed to be thinking about the Argo from ancient Greek literature, as in Jason and the Argonauts? But if that's so, why not just call it the Argo? Yes, we are meant to be thinking about the Argo and the Argonauts. And I think Argonos is a name that derived from Argonauts, or this ship flew from Argonos or something like that. Uh, But I think we're meant to be thinking of the ship, you know, the this J- Jason's ship and his crew here. Uh, that that's what I think is going on. But yeah, I I have no better answer for you. Well, I don't really either. I mean, the only thing that I was thinking of is that you know, if you did space this out as Argo Nos and then uh, took uh, as, as given a verb, uh, like uh, then maybe this is meant to say we are the Argo um, in. Latin, which, you know, it could. Uh, and actually, you might see something like this in Latin, where uh, sometimes verbs are are left as being understood, uh, maybe is what's going on there. That was that was the only type of reading that I could really come up with to sort of think about the, the language issue here. I mean, it is 
thematically clear that we're supposed to be thinking about the Argo and the Argonauts and so on. But uh, as a language person, I was really obsessed with this for, you know, all 400 pages of this book. Well, it's also the case that uh, he's combining the name Arno. He's combining the name Argo with the Nostromo, which is the, the ship name in the original Alien movie, <laughs> and just taking the first the first syllable of that. That name comes from uh, Joseph Conrad's novel Nostromo. But, uh, you know, and Conrad, of course, great merchant, great uh, kind of naval seafaring writer. So I wonder if that is a little homage, a little secret homage to Alien in there as well. Yeah, well, I'll take that. I mean, this certainly is in the vein of Alien, and I think a pretty great successor to it as well. And I think on that note, actually, we can move into our our final assessment of this book, the the strengths and weaknesses segment that I, I do on the, the, the solo ATOS episodes. We've actually pointed out a lot of weaknesses as we've gone. Uh, so maybe let's just leave off here with uh, with talking about the, the strengths. So, so Brandon, I'll kick this to you first. Ultimately, in the end, your final assessment here, what were the the real strengths of this book? It's the horror stuff. It's got to be the horror stuff. That works so well in the story. The senses of danger and fear and fascination and curiosity and the the kind of dread and adrenaline that that surges and the mundanity and banality of it all uh, is so well written and it comes across beautifully the horror of uncovering the human boneyards in various places it's so effective you know the people going mad works really well even if some of these things don't go anywhere this novel is a great sci-fi horror novel in portions and i you know might go back to it just to read it for those sections because this is the best example of sci-fi horror I think I've I've ever read. I'd love to hear recommendations from other sci-fi horror from uh, our listeners as well. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think the second act here is a great horror story. This this alien spaceship as haunted house. Uh, it's got a room with razors on the walls that you have to use a zipline to get through. It's amazing. I loved that part of the book. And it really flavored the whole book for me and, and left me uh, with a real positive feeling when I was was done with this. I really enjoyed this read. I did also like the the world building quite a bit, or, or you know, maybe not necessarily the building of the world, but the setting itself. Uh, I thought the repudiation was a really awesome backstory. I, I love that the ship has no history and therefore also no identity, no purpose, and that this results in it being simply a ship of fools. Those were things that I really, really loved about the the, the book, and I'm, I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to, to read this. I am as well. This is a book I'm, I'm going to keep on my shelf and uh, give to my nephews and nieces when they turn, you know, when they get into seventh grade and stuff like that. I think it's, I think it's a really, really fun book. Great introduction to a lot of ideas, theological and philosophical and philosophical Great haunted house story, pretty good hard science fiction story. So uh, I'm really glad we got the chance to read it as well. Yeah, and no surprise here that this won the Philip K. Dick Award. I mean, this is uh, certainly well-deserving of that award. Well, I think, though, on that note, I think that is going to do it for this episode. So, Brandon, I've got to say thanks for coming on the show to do an extra episode with me this week. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I had a great, great time.
Well, I'm Glenn McDorman. Uh, you can find me and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com, including the two that I host with Brandon, which are Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and then also the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. If you are interested in commissioning a bonus episode of your own, you can contact us there, or you can find our email on the website. And I would love to be doing more commissioned episodes for ATOS. I mean, there's just so many books to read, and I would love an excuse to read more of them. And if you'd like more episodes in this format, please join us on Patreon at whatever level you can and help us get closer to that goal. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash Media. Next time, we really will be reading Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, and uh, that's going to be out on New Year's Eve. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Thank you.